there's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC by Pilot House. Before we get started with the podcast today, I want to give a special shout out to our new sponsor, kickfurther.com. Do you sell a physical product with sales over $150,000? Get fast funding for up to $2 million for your inventory costs, 30% cheaper than other financing options. Kickfurther funds are available when you need to pay your suppliers and you don't need a purchase order to receive or access funding. Kickfurther is also doing an amazing $250,000 funding draw very soon. So if you want to access that, go to d2cnews.link slash kick. That's d2cnews.link slash kick or kickfurther.com if you want to check out their funding services. More information on this soon. Hello and welcome to D2C Deep Dive. I'm Eric Dick uh, here with D2C Newsletter as well as Pilot House. We have Kyle Guilfoyle, head writer of D2C Newsletter, as well as Dave Steele, CEO of Pilot House. Uh, and today we have Simon Solis Cohen, who is the principal of Highway 29 Creative. Uh, we're trying to be really responsive with our audience. So we've, we've noticed that there's a, a large amount of people signing up for our newsletter who are in uh, prohibited or restricted industries uh, like alcohol, like wine, liquor, uh, CBD, cannabis, all these kinds of things. And I, I was actually previously, uh, before I was doing this, was actually in the CBD space. So I know what a challenge it can be uh, to work in that space. So basically we, we put, a, put a little item uh, in one of our newsletters previously uh, about being interested in the space. And so Simon reached out. He happens to be uh, an expert in uh, advertising for the wine industry, marketing for the wine industry. Uh, so welcome to the D2C Deep Dive, Simon. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's really cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into this line of business? Yeah. So, you know, through the twists and turns of my career, um, I've ended up focusing exclusively on the direct to consumer side of the wine industry. Uh, my backgrounds in hospitality, uh, went to culinary school, always uh, working in restaurants growing up and then fell in love with wine. And so I ended up moving out to Napa Valley, uh, California, uh, you know, really a mecca for the wine industry and started just working in uh what they call tasting rooms just working in a winery on the sales floor uh doing tours tastings and my eyes were just like wide out i was just so excited it was so cool i you know just over 21 at that time so pretty exciting just to dive right into it and i quickly just fell in love with the industry it was so unique and there's always something new to learn about wine. That's what's so cool about it. And there's such a passionate fan base. Uh, and so I kind of segued from being on, you know, the sales floor, for lack of a better term, uh, to really pursuing my interest in all things digital when it comes to e-commerce, digital marketing, uh, and websites. And uh, so I worked in-house for some wineries in Napa Valley um, and then decided, you know, I wanted to hang my own shingle and, and start my own agency and really be able to do what I was doing, but be able to bring it to uh, multiple wineries at once. So it's been really exciting. Very cool. Why don't we start a little bit with talking about uh, some of the challenges of, of what it's like to market in this market this particular product versus any other? Yeah, wine's, wine's an interesting product to market uh, because not only do we have to think about all of the you know best practices when it comes to marketing from a content or strategy perspective, but we have to stay up to date with a lot of laws and regulations. 
Um, I know specifically here in the United States and Canada, you know, in any country you're in, each country has their own laws and regula regulations. I'm no expert in Canadian laws, but I can speak to the United States laws. Um, and especially California, where it's really, really regulated. So when it comes to different types of marketing initiatives, there's a lot of things we can and cannot do. So a quick example, Google remarketing. I mean, how many, you know, clients do you guys have where Google remarketing becomes a real pillar of your, you know, your efforts? We can't touch it. Uh, Google simply will not allow marketing ads because of age restrictions. Uh, but Facebook will because you can obviously segment and target based on age. So we kind of have one hand tied behind our back a little bit. Um, so it's definitely a lot to keep up with. In some states, you can't even, you know, ship DTC to. So there's certain states we can't even target. Well, that's interesting. Can you show, are there limitations on showing people drinking as well? Do you, can you just show, like, what, what are, you, are there any limitations on the imagery or the content that you can actually promote? Yeah, so not here in the States. It's funny enough, I was talking to a, a guy in Canada uh, earlier in the week, and he was mentioning, can I guess you guys can't show people drinking? Uh, but that's here we can. Model, yeah. They can just like cheers or something. Yeah, so no, you can do straight up video content or photo content of, of drinking itself here. Nice. Okay, cool. Hey, Simon, I had a question. Does it, do they differentiate between wine, spirits, beer? Like, are there any segmented regulations or is it all just alcohol in general? It's alcohol in general. Yeah. It's really just based on the whole, you know, federal laws here, 21 cool. plus. Cool. Nice. So, so um, Simon, so uh, specifically with the, the remarketing example, um, how, how do you, how do you navigate that kind of a, a bottleneck? Like what, what do you do? Yeah, so we really have to just focus on Facebook, you know, when it comes to remarketing. Obviously, we all know how important remarketing is and such a big part of the sales funnel. So unfortunately, we just have to stick to Facebook and really hope that the people we are remarketing have Facebook profiles and that, you know, with all the changes going on in, in pixel and tracking, I mean, it's, it's going to get a little crazy now. Um, so it really goes back to old school things like data collection, getting email addresses. Uh, we're getting into text marketing as well, which we think is a really big opportunity and really trying to as quickly as possible get away from just a social channel and try to actually get to that personal one-to-one -one engagement. Very cool. So, and so what are some, like the other thing I wanted you to do is kind of like lay the groundwork a little bit for what, what the wine space is like right now. You wrote us a little bit uh, about this, about the other challenges kind of in the wine space due to the number of wineries that maybe the commodification of it a little bit like how, how's that looking right now yeah so wine is really interesting because it started off you know uh really as a farming and agriculture based business and then quickly especially here in the states it just took off right uh you know we had prohibition that obviously kind of slowed everything down and then in the 60s and 70s napa valley specifically really started to take off um and then as we got now into the internet age and modern e-commerce um all of a sudden these businesses which typically had been family owned and operated where they didn't have people who were, you know, marketing officers or e-commerce managers, all of a sudden realized like, oh my God, I have to totally shift my expertise and knowledge, not from just pouring wine for people at my winery, but to actually building 
funnels and you know all these now modern techniques and so it's been really interesting to see what happens um all of these small family-owned wineries which is the majority of the industry are having to play catch-up uh you know when you go to a grocery store you see tons of wine but a lot of it's owned by these mass producing you know conglomerates but really about 80 percent of all the wineries in this country are 5,000 cases or less production and so 5,000 cases is really small i mean those are not people who are seeing mass production where household names and so these days we have at last count over 10,000 wineries in the United States. Um, so it's really, really competitive. And for a while you could just build it and they would come back in, back in the early days of Napa, but there's too much competition these days. So wineries more and more are having to duke it out. And what we're always pushing them to do is just figure out how they can stand apart and not just do the same old, same old, because that doesn't work anymore. It's just, there's too much competition. I was wondering what what size of customer like in, in terms of who who you're working with who who have you seen the best success with are you dealing with that 80% of people in in that those lower uh, number of bottle tiers or are you are you dealing with the, the you know the big boys basically yeah, so we try to have a little bit of a health, healthy balance, right? So we love and respect the small guys because, I mean, hey, you know, all of us, we all start as, you know, bootstrap companies and, it, it you know, we want to help as much as we can. So we do work with some small brands like that. Um, but let's be honest, there are going to be difficulties that are going to be really hard to overcome um, if they don't have the capital to spend in terms of ad dollars. Um, it's really going to limit, you know, the reach we can, you know, create for them without just doing some old school, you know, like, hand-to-hand combat as we call it just doing some organic social and commenting and things like that so we do and where we probably have the most success is with what we call the middle size wineries so those people who are making tens of thousands of cases you know people who are making 20 30 40 thousand 50 60 thousand cases those are the ones that have email lists in the tens of thousands um and where they have enough of a traction already that it really comes to just activating their clientele that's there and there's a lot of retargeting that can be done successfully and building brand awareness is easier because they already have national distribution versus a small brand that no one's really ever seen in the marketplace. So they each present their own challenges depending on the size. Interesting. That makes makes perfect sense. And um, so, I mean, we're always curious. Uh, we love to, to get a little look under the hood. Um, I'm wondering if you could, if you could, outline your, you know, your step-by-step process from when a, when a new wine brand enters your doors to, you know, um, what success looks like on the other side. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the thing about our agency that uh, is a little bit unique is we don't do just the digital advertising. Uh, We are really a full service agency for the direct-to-consumer wine industry. So we help with everything from inception all the way to launch and execution. So we love to get involved at the really, at the beginning of the process, even down to naming mission values, that kind of stuff, to designing of the packaging, the labels, product mix skew. A big part of what we do is we design and build websites. Um, And that's something that I think that sometimes gets overlooked is that you can spend as much money as you want on these digital ads. But if you don't have a website that's optimized, you don't have really effective landing pages, all, all that's for nothing, unfortunately. So for us, we're a foundation company. We like to build one step at a time. So for us, it all comes down to mission and values. I think that so many brands don't know what their mission and values are. Their mission and values are simply make great wine. But to me, that's not really a mission. Um, so for us, that's really what that first step of the process looks like. Could you actually give us an example of a great wine, uh, wine mission? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. 
Yeah. And so what's really interesting is people are starting to evolve and trying to figure out like what those missions are. So there's companies out there that I really like that are looking for more than just making quality wine, but trying to harp on family value. So without like calling out specific brands or getting overly specific, but um, you know, the brands that we think are really successful are the ones that connect it to people and show that whether it's about sustainability with things like organic farming or biodynamic farming, uh, where it says, hey, we're doing something a little bit different, a little bit outside the box, and we think it improves your product because ABC versus just we make great wines. We make great wine because we go through these steps to make sure that our farming practices, you know, work. And so, you know, you can look at brands like Allbirds, you know, who have taken that idea of sustainability and built a whole shoe company around it. There's wine brands that are specifically doing that too, and um, I think it can be just as effective. And is that one of the, the, is that like when it comes to that brand story, is that really right now, like one of the most resonant ones, the one that's sort of about sustainability about, or are there other ones that do try that, that do connect well to lifestyle or, or sort of other images as well? Yeah. So, I mean, you see all types of stories that are coming out of there, right? Um, when, you know, you can look at other brands that are trying to build on lifestyle. I think that's a super effective strategy as well. And I'm a big supporter of it. Um, you know, cause you have a lot of these upstart digital wineries. I mean, you look like at Gay Vaynerchuk, right? You know, they, to many people, a hero of this industry. I, I respect the crap out of him. I think he's awesome. And with his brand Empathy uh, that he built and pretty quickly sold to Constellation Wine just a couple months ago, um, they built that entire thing um, digitally, right? And they didn't have, you know, their own vineyards or anything. So they built the brand all about just this lifestyle that Gary's creating. Um, and I think that was just super effective and obviously good enough to, to get the eyes of, a, of an acquisition. Totally. And actually, it's a great uh, segue because, um, I mean, what, what Gary did with, uh, with Wine Library TV, I think it was called, was he, you know, he was basically uh, exploiting, uh, you know, a, a blue ocean, right? Like he was going where others aren't or weren't at the time. And I'm wondering um, what, what those blue oceans are right now in 2020 for uh, the wine industry. Are there, are there ones that really stand out to you? Yeah, so I think that content is so important Gary and Gary proved that and I think that there's so much room for wineries to invest in content that has nothing to do with wine. Um, I think that way too often brands are purely investing in content that goes back to their product um, and not content that as we were just talking about supports the lifestyle around the product right so at the end of the day you know, we're never going to rank on SEO for Napa Valley Cabernet for our clients. Like that's just too competitive. That's just an uphill battle. That's not worth really engaging. We're not going to get that number one spot, but there's other ways to get there, creating that lifestyle product. So we're all about trying to get people to invest in recipes, being able to partner with chefs and, and food bloggers to get that kind of content, being able to, you know, really understand what the mindset is that goes into drinking wine and try to paint that lifestyle for people through that other kind of content. Today, I want to give a special shout out to our brand new sponsor, Hashtag Paid. Uh, we like to say goodbye influencers, hello creators. You can get consumers talking about your brand and buying your products with creator marketing. They're basically a one-stop shop for every kind of social content you might want to use in your ad funnel. They offer uh, full service, uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of different packages. You got to go check them out at hashtagpaid.com. So back, back to your, back to the idea of, of this step-by-step -step process. So first one, you get, you're getting the story straight. You're getting the, the, the brand story, the brand mission, the brand values. Uh, what, what basically, what's in your playbook kind of beyond that uh, in terms of actually driving traffic? What, what have you seen work best? 
Yeah. So it really comes down to, as you guys know, the content, right, that we're putting out there. And so, you know, we go, depending on the brand and the mission, right, sometimes Google's more effective, sometimes Facebook's more effective, especially since COVID hit, we've seen Facebook become very, very effective for us. We've seen the return on ad spend really start increasing, um, especially while there's some boycotts going on and people were kind of standing on the sidelines. We just kind of doubled down with our clients and increased our spend to take advantage of some, uh, you know, lighter competition out there for these audiences. Uh, so for us, it really comes down to getting some high quality uh, awareness type um, content that is not just about here's a bottle of wine. When we look at the content that's out there, the worst performing content is just product photography. Um, you know, this people, you know, think of wine as this natural, you know, substance, this drink. And when you put just a photo of a glass bottle out there, like, I can't think of anything more sterile and boring than here's a picture of glass. It's really hard to emotionally connect with that. So what we find the most effective content to be out there is when there's people in the photos and when you're showing how to actually use the product. Um, I know it sounds super counterintuitive, but like, people don't know how to drink wine necessarily. They get super intimidated by it. So for us, it's about creating content that shows like, here's how you can enjoy it, right? So like, here's a meal you can cook with it, going back to the recipes I was mentioning. You know, and that's some really just high level cheap content we can put to, you know, start grabbing awareness for people. You know, so here's a great pairing for that. Or, you know, and so it's really just putting out content that shows that they can see themselves in the setting, we find to be super effective. Um, and then in general, as we're pushing them down the funnel, social proof is, is everything, right? Especially when it comes to the alcohol industry. Um, we're one of those industries that we have an existing standard for social proof. It's called points. Um, you know, you look to people like Robert Parker, um, who started with just some humble email newsletter. I mean, like talk about the beginning of email newsletters, where he would just write up to his friends like, hey, I tried these wines. It's really cool. And it turned into this unbelievable business, the Robert Parker's Wine Advocate and Magazine. Um, and he's since retired, but they continue on in his name and have multiple critics out there and where people are going out and tasting wine and scoring it, you know, out of 100 points. And realistically, most of the ratings are, you know, between say 90 and 100. And so people know this, they know when they hear 90 points or 100 points that that's quality. And so it's so interesting because it's a language most wine drinkers understand. So we can just put that out there and instantly when we get good scores like that and can advertise those points and put a famous critic name, it just instantly garners clicks for our advertising. Also, I, I know that, um, you know, uh, each varietal has its own, you know, nuance. Uh, some would say it's, you know, its own story. Uh, there's terroir attached to it, this and that. Uh, I'm curious what, your favorite varietal is and also if, if you happen to have a favorite varietal to uh to market for for whatever reason yeah and that's a good question yeah so i mean what i personally like to drink um i like you know variety of different wines but i personally kind of go more towards french uh wines to my palate um i really enjoy those the most um so without getting like too obscure but there's some great grapes out there called like chenin blanc which i really enjoy to drink really uh refreshing light wine from uh sort of central part of france called the loire valley um and i love red grape syrah it's a really just great grape you find in france um but here in america they're starting to really grow it well um in terms of what wine is easiest to market well it's funny because you can just go to like google trends and you can just like start searching by varietals and it's so amazing because the king always at the end of the day is cabernet sauvignon 
yep. you know, the joke sort Robust. of in the wine industry is Cabernet Sauvignon pays the bills so you can do everything else, right? So if we can run an ad, right, and, uh, you know, assume the CPC is the same, Cabernet Sauvignon is always going to be a much higher profit margin, right? So at the end of the day, I want to sell my most expensive product. And it's also the easiest to sell. I mean, even if it's a cheaper, obscure varietal, people get scared by new in the wine industry generally. I mean, there's always those people who are seeking the next new hot thing. But if you put out, you know, Vermentino, uh, no one knows what that is, right, in, in generally speaking. But Cabernet Sauvignon, it's tried, trusted, and true. And it's usually the highest margin out there. So when in doubt, let's sell that thing because we're going to get the best return on ad spend for our client. Nice. Do you use the word robust a lot? Oh, I always say it all. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I personally hate using tasting notes and ad copy. Um, I know that it can work and I kind of just hold, hold my nose and do it. But, you know, when we think about it, like people when they're Googling and searching and we're looking at keyword planner and stuff for, for wine terms, people usually don't search by tasting notes. You know, I mean, they might say rich, they might say light. Um, they might say like light white wine, Full right? Bodied. And that can get a lot of, what's that? Full bodied or something Full like that. Full bodied. Yeah. yeah. But even, but, in, but really when it comes down to like, when we look at Google trends and, and the keyword planner and stuff, it's really just getting right into the varietal and people don't put that much, uh, in terms of like long tail keywords into their searches typically, which is I think kind of interesting. And I think that shows how intimidating it is for a lot of people. They just don't really know where to start when, when searching. Were you in um, the industry when sideways happened? Um, no, I'm young enough that I wasn't working in the wine industry, but it yeah. forever screwed up the wine industry because yeah. I, I remember back at my first job when I was working, you know, in the, in the tasting room, trying to sell wine on, on the sales floor and do tastings, you know, we try to pour, pour a bottle of Merlot for people and they're like, no, oh, no, 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 thank you. I'm like, why? Well, well, sideways. You're lucky they said no thank you and not nobody better drink any fucking Merlot. <laughs> People have also tried that. I was I was trying to be polite and censored myself, but yes, yeah. <laughs> I get a little bit of both. Um, and it drastically has impacted the marketing of Merlot. I mean, there's still an effect. I mean, there's so many articles out there called the sideways effect that you can read about. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not a varietal that I personally would put a lot of budget behind um, when it comes to marketing just because people have a kind of negative reaction to it even though some of the best wines in France are all Merlot based um, it's just kind of interesting how that worked that's powerful well, and, <laughs> that's yeah. and, and similarly the the Somme documentary uh, that I think was on Netflix maybe it still is uh, did, did, did you notice that impact anything well, I think without a doubt, it got more people into wine, right? And it just like, it was the best piece of free awareness for the wine industry, right? Because all of a sudden people started joking around, like there was that guy in the Psalm documentary, uh, was it Ian, I think, who was like joking about like a wine smelling like a can of tennis balls, right? So everyone thought that was so funny and it became a meme, right? So I think that any type of content like that is really great for the industry because it just gets people more involved. And it gets people to their search engine that gets people searching for stuff. And it makes people want to have deeper conversation, not just this high level, like, tell me about this wine, but they start wanting to know like scientific specs and data and really geeky, geeky stuff. And that's the thing about wine is that winemakers sometimes are not the world's best marketers because they get too geeky and scientific. Um, so it's sometimes trying to balance them with like SEO type verbiage and content marketing based verbiage instead of like really, really geeky verbiage that could really scare people away. Simon, on, on that note, I was going to ask you, you know, Highway 29 Creative. So 
you mentioned a little earlier about lifestyle creative versus product focused creative. I was asked by a, a contact of mine, they're actually uh, running a winery in the UK and they said, Hey, oh, cool. if you were in my shoes, how would you, you know, take this D to C? This is our new, you know, this is right in the midst of, of COVID. And I really had to sit there and I, I thought about it. And of course, uh, Gary V came to mind and I was thinking about, you know, content first approaches. Um, and what I find interesting about your business is because your niche and because you're testing for, for so many so similar clients, when you find winners, you can uh, extrapolate that across your whole, your whole client roster, which is very, very cool. And so you can uh, do things very powerfully. Could you give me some insight? What about things like founder story? What about this, this geek stuff where, you know, you just said a moment ago, winemakers often go geeky and does that does that push the audience away when you're prospecting does that sort of you know here's how it's grown here's why we're, we're different is that stuff performing or is it flopping yeah so that's a, that's a really interesting question i think it can work for the right clientele but i think like sometimes in the wine industry we get these blinders on where we think everyone's just like us right, right. like work in the wine show where we understand that and so I think founder story is so crucial, right? Um, I mean, we work pretty, I can't even think of anyone who's not pretty much all family or, you know, founder run or owned wineries. And that's great that we get to just help family run and, and, and founder run businesses, which is amazing. And we are always trying to push them to be the center of their own story. And it's so funny because so many of them get so shy, but I'm always being like, okay, at that next photo shoot, you need to be in the photo, not yeah. just your customers. And that content does work. People resonate with it. They love seeing stories. And what we're always pushing people to do is like, you know, once again, going back to like what Gary Vee kind of proved and shows, just turn that iPhone on and just take a selfie video and talk about your product. And sometimes, you know, people let perfection be the enemy, right? And they just want to make these perfectly produced pieces of content. But if you're the winemaker, you're the owner, just start recording a video and put it out there. And that's going to be you know, I hate that word authentic, but you know, it's going to be something that people can connect with because they want an emotional connection to the brand. They don't want some just like shiny connection. Yeah. What, so, so tell me is, is I'm going to give you an example is, and I'd love to know if this is happening. So I imagined myself receiving, you know, my, my subscription order box of wine, let's say there's 12, 12 bottles with each bottle. If it was, a, it came with a digital essentially tasting, right? Where yeah. I get to watch it on my screen with my family or whatever, or not family, but uh, partner um, yeah. over, over dinner. Is that, is that content that your clients are producing and, and kind of sending alongside the product? Yeah. So that's something that COVID has just totally just opened up. And that's, and it's, I mean, there's nothing good about COVID, but it, I could say is it forced instant innovation you know, right. which to me is a positive for the industry. Any innovation is positive. And so all of a sudden we have this term virtual tastings that didn't exist pre-COVID. Now everyone's like, oh my God, how can I set one up? And, and I think that's kind of a little bit what you're alluding to. And so it is effective. It is working. Um, we have some smaller brands we, we work with that um, they've commented that all of a sudden that's their number one sales strategy now is that we're and we actually have people paying us to run ads on Facebook advertising these virtual tastings where it's hey schedule this tasting you're gonna get on zoom with the founder or the winemaker or the owner of the winery we'll ship you this three pack or six pack of wine and we're gonna walk you through it and people are doing it for birthdays weddings bachelorette parties just like friends and family types events 
And they're really powerful because we're finally figuring out as an industry how to force people to buy something before actually consuming yeah. the content, right? You have to buy to consume content. And that's totally flipping this D to C funnel on side of its head, actually. It's really interesting. That is super interesting. And it also solves the other biggest problem is that I can't drink enough at wine tastings. So now, <laughs> in the comfort of my own home, I can There's drink. no judgment at home. <laughs> There's no judgment at home. Uh, which is good. And uh, KG knows all about this. He's, he was a, a bartender in a former life and still is, uh, produces uh, info content around bartending as well. So anything specifically nice. from the, uh, the bar side of things. Well, I had one last, I had one other question because for me, I love, I, I really enjoy going to wine tastings. Uh, the Island has quite a, a vibrant wine scene here and I'm always in a good mood when, when I'm at these, uh, at these wineries. And I, th I feel like that's like the ultimate opportunity to get UGC in some ways. If you can get people like at your winery in that experience, is that something wineries are doing effectively? Like actually, uh, you know, that winery experience really um, making enough content about that? Um, I don't think they're doing enough of it. Yeah. I think that sort of like when UGC started becoming a thing, I don't know how many years ago that was, but you know, like at first, like as, as all these platforms are popping up, people start putting signs up in their taste room, like, Hey, tag us on Instagram or Facebook. Right. But I don't think many, um, I'm just thinking generally, I don't think generally many brands have perfectly figured out how to leverage that content properly um you know i see a lot of people like just repost it in their stories and things like that but um you know being able to partner with influencers or brand ambassadors choose your, choose your word there and being able to leverage that content and run paid ads under their accounts even though you know the brand is sponsoring and tapping into the, their audiences um that's something i try to push for people it's hard for a lot of wineries to kind of get into that. They don't necessarily always see the value in that kind of you know influencer marketing and and putting money behind UGC versus just simply taking it and reposting it. Exactly. Uh, this is something we work with all the time, this, this influencer content flywheel, this ability to kind of create content, use it up and down your funnel in a way that, that really drives people forward. What are the ways that you're getting, the most effective ways you're getting UGC for your clients? How are they creating these, these content funnels or content, you know, yeah, funnels essentially. Yeah, well, the great thing is, is naturally people want to boast about what they're eating and drinking, right? Like that's just the, such the cool thing about this industry. I mean, you look at like Pinterest and I've seen these studies that's like food and wine is the number one thing on Pinterest, right? Um, on Instagram, you can search, you know, hashtag wine and it bazillions of things, right? And so for, you know, most good medium sized to larger brands, I mean, there's already people tagging them every day and they don't even like notice, go to that field and Instagram and just grab it. And so our biggest thing to people is like, don't swim upstream here. If the content is existing out there, go and find it and utilize it. Uh, so for instance, you know, obviously like on Instagram is getting tagged, um, but a big trick we love really simple is just hit up uh, an app called Vivino uh, or just Google reviews. People are always posting UGC around wine in the form of reviews. People want to be a critic. And so Vivino is a great example of an app where uh, if you guys aren't familiar with it, basically people can go and they can just leave feedback and comments and rate a wine out of five stars. And there's, millions upon millions of reviews That's and cool. so when we're running ads and we're doing some middle of the funnel kind of work we go to vivino and find some just really nice five-star reviews and that's what we're going to use as part of our content and you know um and we say you know on vivino.com we give credit and we just say look this is a review and these reviews are amazing i mean like people say like oh most amazing wine hidden gem i mean stuff i couldn't even dream of like it's so high quality the copy that's there it's like why swamp stream when it already exists out there in the world.
I love that. I love that, Simon. And you mentioned earlier that when you do have a wine with those positive reviews, uh, that's, where, that's where the performance spikes. If you don't mind me asking, like what, what sort of benchmarks in the industry do you have? Like, I'm curious from a direct response perspective, if you were, let's say, prospecting on, on Facebook, uh, how, how does wine sales do in general in terms of like return on ad spend? Yeah. So, I mean, the nice thing is, is it's usually really high average order values compared to maybe some other, you know, DTC industries. And because we work, you know, mostly with a lot of, you know, higher end luxury brands, you know, we can be seeing, you know, average order values, you know, easily in the 100, 200 plus dollar range. Right. So we have some clients where like an AOV is uh, like 250, $260. Right. So, you know, for our minimum, anything that's, you know, where we're actually trying to convert the bottom of the funnel, we're looking easily for three times return on ad spend um, as sort of our minimum. If we're doing any less than three times, uh, we're not really happy with that specific campaign, but for some of our bigger well-known clients that have really great brand equity, uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing seven times, seven times, 10 times, depending on the campaign, we've seen some creeping into the twenties return on ad spend. And it's just honestly having a brand with big brand equity in their name uh, really goes a long way because people are such devoted fans. You set, you put up a good ad, have a great offer. They're going to click and the average order value is just going to work in your favor because it's naturally pretty high. Totally. That, that's very cool. What about, what about subscription here and, and how, how are you balancing sort of that upfront customer acquisition cost where when you're, when you're prospecting cold and they don't know the brand, obviously, you know, that, that cost is a lot, uh, a lot higher and that ROAS typically is lower, but if that's offset by the fact that you're actually getting subscriptions and that, that LTV comes into play, how is that working for you? Yeah. So that's something that, you know, it's so interesting trying to get the wine industry to kind of flip their thinking about it because, you know, generally speaking, you know, our clients, when we start working with people, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to lose on that customer acquisition. And we have to explain, as you guys know, yeah, sometimes you kind of take a little bit of a loss on that acquisition cost because you're about maximizing that LTV. And with these wine clubs and these, you know, subscriptions, oh my God, I mean, like, it's such a great way to maximize LTV because you're getting people to agree to automatically let you charge their credit card and ship them wine. And, and when you really think about it, wine was one of the first subscription models out there. I mean, yeah. this has been going back decades in Napa Valley where they had these ideas of wine clubs. And it's only now, you know, that we've hit this subscription economy uh, where all of a sudden all these other industries are doing it. Um, so in general, when we're looking at cost of a customer acquisition, looking at some of uh, the accounts we're running, you know, to get people to sign up for for, you know, their lists and their subscriptions, you know, sometimes we're looking, you know, at the $20, $30, you know, price point to acquire some of these customers, say through like Facebook marketing and prospecting. And typically when we've looked at wine club, you know, there's always sort of that point where people fall off, but it's usually I found around that 11 month period. So if you can get someone to sign up and you can get them to commit to say two or three shipments or four shipments and can try to maximize them over that first year, you could do really, really well. Um, the key is to get them over that about 11, 12 month hump. If that's when you see a lot of that attrition kick in, which is always just a big issue for any subscription business, but especially for wine. But once you can get them over that first hump, uh, that's when you start to easily see three, four year long memberships. And there's, you know, for legacy brands, as I call them, the ones that have been there for decades, I mean, that people have been members for literally for decades. Um, so it's just really interesting trying to balance that. What are you finding the sweet spot in terms of product to be sent to them in terms, you know, in each shipment to try and balance, obviously, if you're shipping wine, this is a, this is a high cost product to ship. So you, you want to ship enough that you, you know, 
you find some efficiencies. Yeah. So this is where, in my opinion, the wine industry is having this massive reckoning and awakening and disagreement. So wine clubs, generally speaking, are very much more of this legacy old school mentality of you're going to get, you know, either like one, two or three shipments a year. And you can choose, you know, how many bottles maybe you get for shipment, but we're going to tell you what wine to get. And there's been a lot of conversations and internal dialogue in this industry of like, that's not the right approach, you know, and everyone's now looking to the Dollar Shave Clubs, the Birch Boxes, all these, you know, all these other subscription models out there that have completely changed this. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of it's been because the technology the wine industry has been using has held them back. They haven't had the tools to properly implement what we call this now modern subscription economy, where you're setting up these intervals for shipments. Um, and so what's interesting is the wine industry uses generally at least our customers that we work with very specific e-com platforms, not Shopify, but like Shopify, but just for the industry. And so now they're starting to offer the tools to better create these types of shipments where users can customize. And that's just been this massive switch where all these wineries are now moving from, we're going to force you every you know two to three times a year to take these six bottles to you choose your frequency, you choose what you get, and we try to upsell you to add more. So that's really what we're pushing. And in my, in my op, you know, uh, opinion, give choice, like let people go between, you know, two shipments a year, three shipments a year, four shipments a year, don't just have one set frequency. And I think way too many wineries are just making a one size fits all subscription versus allowing customer choice. That's very interesting. And, and, like, I guess the wine clubs, the beauty of the wine clubs is you're getting more, you, you, people are committing to like a journey of wines, right? Like whether it's, you know, of a certain region or of a certain kind, whereas when you're, uh, you really have to have that connection with people as a winery to get them to commit to a year of wines in a way, right? Uh, and that kind of goes back to something we used to talk about with Smoothie Box, uh, actually on our very first podcast ever, but really, really selling people on something and then upselling them to the subscription. Are, are you seeing more of that or are you like selling them on, on something that they're testing, realizing they're liking it, then selling them on the subscription or are you kind of going for that subscription right away? Yeah. So here at our agency, we have our own custom funnel that we, that we build and live off of and they're really going to process. So it's, it's five stages. And so like for us, you know, it starts with awareness and then we go to interest to consideration. Uh, and then we go to bottle purchase and that's usually where most funnels end, right? Just that conversion. But then we go from bottle purchase in the middle of our funnel to repeat purchase and then just subscription. Nice. And that's our funnel process. And so I get these ads I'm targeted for because obviously Facebook knows I'm into wine. So I get all these <laughs> wine ads and I see these ads from wineries I've never heard of asking me to join their wine club. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's like going on Tinder and asking someone to marry you like in the, in the direct messages, right? Like totally. we got a date, we got to get to know each other before we decide to commit to each other for long-term here. And so we're like, okay, let's, prospect let's just get them to buy once i don't care what you buy i don't care how much you buy i just want you to buy something because odds are it's going to be high quality and you're going to like it and then let's get you to buy one more time prove your repeat customer and that you're actually interested in this product and that's how we just can keep shrinking that funnel down and then we'll hit them up okay well obviously you love our wine obviously you're ordering it let us tell you about the subscription model where you're going to get you know discounts savings benefits exclusive offers things like that versus just going straight to, hey, sign up to commit to a whole year of wine, sight and see. It's Love so much easier once they've tasted the product. Love that. And, and I, first of all, thank you. I, I, love, I love that layout that you've, you've um, highlighted. Take us through real quick here, the content evolution and what type of content you're finding 
is working better top of funnel to get that first purchase as opposed to, you know, what type of content is uh, working to get that second purchase and to get that subscription. Cause I imagine once they're through the awareness, now they start to care a little bit more about the founder's story. They care a little bit more about the story behind the grapes than maybe they did when they did, weren't even aware of the brand. Like I, why, what's in it for me? I don't care. I don't care what your story is kind of thing. Right. You're 100% correct. No, you're 100% dead on. Yeah, once we can get towards the bottom of our five-stage funnel, that's when we want to even double down even more on founder story, right? So for some of the ads I have like working right now, we're starting to now use the names of the owners towards, you know, our bottom of the funnel to get them to subscribe. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I'm making up names, but you know, John and Sally, you know, join our club because you're going to get these exclusive benefits, blah, 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 blah. And we're putting photos and content of the family or of the founders because that's when they've connected and they've emotionally clipped into the brand values and mission when they're connecting to that founder story. Um, but at the top, you're right. They don't really care to be honest as much. Um, you know, at the beginning, it's like, okay, this is wine. Why should I drink this wine? And so we got to explain why this wine is different than all other wines. And the founder story can play a part of it. Um, but that's not always necessarily something, as you said, that it's going to be as easy to connect with. Um, so you kind of have to do more like, I hate to say like explainer type content, right? At, at the top of the funnel. But yeah, down at the bottom, definitely double down on, on just that founder story. Why hasn't HelloFresh come up with a companion guide or something where you could, I was trying to think like on, on Taco Tuesdays or something, you could do wine, you know, uh, ads for wine. That's well, so like really Blue great Apron with tacos. Yeah. Yeah. Blue Apron added a wine club. I signed up just to go through their journey. Um, they're doing like, they're doing little mini bottles. Uh, really nice packaging, actually. I, I give them props on their packaging. Really great. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the thing is, once again, laws and regulations, it's so tricky to be able to technically and legally ship and sell wine to all 50 states. If you're not, if you're a retailer, something interesting is that retailers, oh, they're so screwed in this country. I mean, they can't get permits to ship to all the states uh, compliantly. So wineries can ship, I think it's almost like 45 or something states, um, if they're a California, you know, winery or producer. But if you're a retailer, you can only ship, if you're, you know, based in California, you can only ship to like 14 or 15 states. So technically someone like uh, uh, HelloFresh or Blue Apron, they're really considered a retailer because they're not producing it themselves. Mm -hmm. Now there's some really tricky shit you can do to become a producer and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, so at the end of the day, in our industry, the compliance and regulations give producers a leg up in the DGC business. And my concern is they don't realize how good they have it because the laws are about to change. There's a big Supreme Court ruling last year, um, which was really interesting, which is pretty much saying that states can't start, can't keep retailers out anymore. They have to start letting retailers start shipping. And so you have these retailers who are getting ready. I mean, the laws are slowly going to start changing state by state. And once retailers get in, I think the game's going to be almost over for these really small brands. There's no way they'll be able to compete with the ad spend of big retailers that have national footprints. So I think, I think time's running out for these brands to just go all in on and start building these funnels and start getting their brand out there digitally because it's about to get even more crowded than it is today once retailers jump in. And your concept of building in public, I think, is so relevant. This is something I keep bringing up Midday Squares, Montreal, um, you know, chocolate company. I they, love that episode. Yeah, I, I follow them now. I see their ads every day and they're everything. They're just, they, they make a point to do something 
you know, interesting about the, you know, how they're building their business. And to me, it's like as a wine, I imagine if you're working every day, you know, you know, you're a vintner, basically, you may, you might not realize that a lot of people kind of like look up to that in the world. Like that's yeah. a pretty noble job, right? Like that's the pretty thing, cool. <laughs> that's, that's the thing you do after you've like seen a lot of shit and then you go and you have a winery and you know, like it just, it seems like, and so I think there's a lot of people interested in the stories of those people who come to own those wineries. So that, I think that as like a way to end this, just to say, really focus in on, on that building that one-to-one relationship, really understand that you, that, you know, you have to be kind of the star of your own story in this case, in you order have to make that to. connection in a lot of ways. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you if, cause I know we got a ton of people on this list, uh, who are, who are in, in the wine space in the, in, in, you know, specifically. So if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, how do they do that? Yeah. Just, uh, check us out. Uh, highway 29 creative.com. The abbreviation for highway, uh, HWY 29 creative.com. We have redirect on the full word too, but you can do it that way. Um, come to our website, check us out. You can shoot us an email. Hello at HWY 29 creative.com. Um, always love to chat and hear cool ideas. And I mean, that's for me, the joy of this job is, um, you know, I have a great team around me. I'm nothing without my team. And I get to spend a lot of my time just chatting with founders of these brands and hearing amazing, really passionate brand stories. And to me, that's the best part of this is being able to hear these journeys of these founders and figure out how we can help them. That's really what it's all about. Very cool. I wanted to ask quickly, KG and Dave, what's your, what do you reach for uh, if, if you're grabbing some wine? Um, I'm an easy sav. Easy sav, yeah. I'm um I'm I'm pretty basic. I'm 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 not proud of it, but uh I'll go to the wine store and I'll just find a bottle that looks good and is like about around the twelve dollar range. <laughs> I see yeah. Cheap. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um I'm not very sophisticated. I'm a I'm a sideways sucker and I'm I, I really love Pinot Noir. I drink a lot of Pinot Noir. That's my fave. Yeah, so anyway. I do. I do. I do like something really big, though. I like it to be big, bold, yeah. robust wine. You might. You might say. Yeah. Right. Well, this has been a very robust podcast. Thank you for coming on the deep dive, uh, Simon. And let's stay in touch. And uh, uh, if uh, it, when we send over a number of big wineries, maybe you can ship us some bottles. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you can get it across the border, I don't know. Yeah, I say uh, getting to export laws is a whole nother bag there. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Would, would a UK referral uh, do you any good or no? US only? Um, I mean, hey, we're open to chat to anyone. We really specialize in the in the US. Um, but uh, we've, def- we've been definitely chatting to people in other countries because a lot of importers are trying to figure out how to take, you know, European wines and things like that and totally. sell them here totally. in the States. So we've had a lot of those phone calls lately. Nice. Cool. Okay. okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers.